Our guest today is Dr. Lori Marker, who is considered the Jane Goodall of cheetahs. Her facility in Namibia is the most cutting edge, yet she borrows secrets from the ancient Egyptians in her quest to save wild cheetahs. I'm Dustin Planholt, founder and CEO of Life's Tough Media. This season of Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher is made possible through the generous support of Ripple. We hope you enjoy the series. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weese Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club, just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Today we're going to take a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to the southwest coast of Africa, to Namibia, a country with the biggest sand dunes in the world and also the fastest land animal, the cheetah. Our guest is Dr. Lori Marker, who is widely considered the foremost expert on these remarkable animals. Lori, welcome to Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher. Nice to see you. Great to be with you. Nice to see you as well. And before we get into cheetahs, I want to relate a story that I don't think I've ever told to you. When I first came to visit you in Namibia, I landed in in a small plane uh, with a film crew, and it had just rained, and the sun was coming out. And there was this wonderful smell in the air. And I've since looked over that phenomena that people might experience after an April rain in the spring in the United States. And it's a Greek term called petrichor. And it's actually from these microorganisms and plants exuding certain types of oils that give it a really fragrant smell. But I have to say that in Namibia, the smell was just so much purer than I'd ever experienced before. So that's sometimes what I think about when I think of Namibia. Uh, It's a great smell. Absolutely. We're just having rains now that have just started. And I have to fully agree with you that just that smell, 
I've never smelled it anywhere else as well. So we all here in Namibia love that smell. We all say, oh, it's the, the, the smell of rain. So, so how nice to know that. Yeah, it's always good to know there's a term to describe even right. uh, the, the most simplest of human experiences. Um, for people who've never been to Namibia, can you describe the country and what is often called cheetah land? What, what is the country of Namibia in which they live in? Well, Namibia is a very large country, um, and it's about two and a half times the size of California. But we are a very arid country, so we go from a very long um, coastline where, again, there are the highest dunes and the oldest deserts, inland where we are about, we're about five hours inland from the coast, and this is cheetah country. And cheetah country has thorn bushes here, we've got um, open savanna land, and lots and lots of wildlife. About 80% of all of our wildlife is found outside of game reserves. Um, of course, our largest game reserve in the country is um, the Atosha National Park. And yet there are very few cheetahs there. Most all of the cheetahs are found um, outside of the protected areas on these, their farmlands, ranch lands, where people ranch, livestock, goats, sheep, cattle. And also it's integrated. So there's a lot of wildlife on the land where the livestock is as well. And there are cheetahs, 90% of the cheetahs are here where there are farmers. You know, you mentioned farms and to me, um, having visited your facility, which I have to say is one of the most cutting edge uh, research facilities, but yet you have borrowed ancient wisdom from uh, perhaps the Egyptians where they took um, guard dogs and had them bond with uh, herds of goats or sheep or whatever they did and protected them. This is something that um, may seem simple, but I, I think you've got to be the person who's really introduced it in the protection of cheetahs. Right. Now, I started this program here about 25 years ago. And when I was prior to being here, so I've been in Namibia over 30 years now, um, in America, in Oregon, actually, we were using these dogs. They are livestock guarding dogs. The breed that we use is a Turkish breed, and it's called an Anatolian Shepherd or a Kangal dog. And they have been used for over 5,000 years to protect livestock. So they're absolutely amazing. They grow up with the goats or sheep or cattle, and then they protect them. And they protect them by barking loudly, marking territory, they live with the flock. They're actually very incredible dogs, very smart, independent thinkers. Um, and so we've now started that program, as I said, 25 years ago, and we've bred and placed over um, ever over 700 dogs. So we, um, we donate them pretty much to the farmers and then we work with the farmers for the dog's entire life. And uh, so we've got a lot of farmers that we're friends with. Um, we've got about 150 dogs out working right now, and we had our last litter of puppies just a couple days before Christmas. So we've got puppies on the ground right now as well. I, I've seen those puppies. They're, they're very cute. I mean, if you want to ascribe, I, I know you're a, a wildlife biologist, and the word cute <laughs> isn't always something you like to use. And um, I thought about getting one of those dogs, and I thought, wow, what a great dog to have with uh, my family. However, when I visited Turkey, where they are uh, house dogs, I've discovered a couple things. They bark very loudly and very often. And I think that if you would have those in the United States and had any neighbors within any kind of distance, you probably would not be a good neighbor. 
you wouldn't. They their their bark is very very loud and um, and they don't listen to you. They have the, as I said an independent thinking and they do what they think is best. They think we are uh, maybe a little bit smarter than their goats and sheep, but really we are not a very smart species to them. Um, they have their own um, reasons for doing things, and if they are, um, if you've been raised by them or you raised them with you, they think that your jo their job is to protect you as well. So anything that they're raised with, they will protect. Um, they're pretty nice dogs, but they also need very large spaces to live in and roam in. So these dogs are used to covering, you know, miles and miles every day, not to kind of be in your backyard. So they don't make a good pet. And that's why they've actually been, you know, they're a rare breed as well, because there aren't that many of them. Because the herding and livestock out on the lands is something that has become reduced more and more as we've gone more into commercialized um, ways of taking care of our, our animals. Here in Africa, though, we do still have a lot of, you know, movement of our animals, lots of open spaces. And that's why the dog works so well here. They move with the flocks every day and then come in in the evenings. And then they're also very, very loud at night because that's when most of the predators are active. So people don't really understand that. You know, they think, oh, the livestock comes in and they all go to sleep. Well, they do, but the dog never sleeps. It is always alert. And if there's predators around, they bark. And then there, there's an avoidance that goes on that they, predators then realize that there is something very big there that they don't want to get hurt. That's also another misconception that people think that predators want to eat your livestock and they really don't. What a predator wants is a quick, easy meal. And if your livestock is not protected um, or managed properly, then a predator gets it. And then the predator usually gets, um, you know, it's responsible. It's called a problem animal. However, I try to bring it back to the farmers that the farmers actually play a role in the loss of their livestock. And then of course they always blame the cheetah. And I explain to them that it's not the cheetah's fault. You know, you put your livestock out and could lose it to like a cheetah if you don't manage it properly. And so that's why the dogs work so well. Lori, I've always been so impressed by how farmers treat you either as an equal or a certain degree of reverence. So you're originally from California, you grew up in California. Now you're in Namibia, which is not your home country. How is it that farmers bought into using that versus um, using poisons or, or shooting them. It, it seems like that you've been widely accepted, at least your views and your practices. What has made that difference? Well, I think when I came here first and I first arrived in Namibia in actually the middle 1970s, and I think what I wanted to know was everything about how um, the farmers were farming and how you know, why they hated cheetahs and why they were killing so many cheetahs. So in the 1970s and 80s, the farmers were killing like eight to 900 cheetahs a year here in Namibia. And then when I moved here in 1990, I went door to door working with the farmers. Now I grew up um, on a small farm. And so I had horses. I always, I still ride my horse every single day um, and have always had goats. And I had a dairy goat farm and I was actually a um, goat judge. So when you can talk to farmers about that, um, you can, they can relate. I'm not only am a good biologist, but I'm a good livestock manager and I love my livestock. 
And with that, I don't want predators eating my livestock. And that's what I tried to explain to them. And I think a lot of people who are carnivore biologists really are not farmers. And if you do like your livestock, you can understand why farmers um, get angry, I guess, at predators. And that's why, again, I've been able to put it around to say, well, you know, it's not really the predator's problem. It's your problem. You are playing a role in this. And the farmers have understood. The more I learned from them about their management systems and their movement of the wildlife through their lands and the movement of cheetahs and other predators around, um, I got the farmers' hands on the cheetahs as well and got them involved in the research we were doing. So if they caught a cheetah and they called it a problem animal, I'd go and pick it up. Um, uh, oftentimes I'd anesthetize it there at their farm and get their hands on the animal, help them, you know, they'd help me collect blood. You know, I'd let them listen to the heartbeat of the cheetah. And next thing you knew that they started to become my collaborators, I think I would say. I wanted to know everything there was about the cheetah. And when I started in the, the early 90s, really nothing was even known about a wild cheetah. So as they started learning more, putting radio collars on the cheetahs and tracking them, they started learning more about how the cheetahs were living. And I think that again, by in getting the farmers involved, they became vested in, um, in my love of this animal. And from that, they learned um, through my eyes that the cheetah wasn't maybe necessarily their enemy, that they could actually learn to live with it. But it seems that um, as much as you study cheetahs and even their personalities, it seems that there is some sort of life lesson that you've learned about human uh, psychology, because I've seen how your um, graduate students uh, react to you and um, sort of the comfort in which comfort and respect they work with you. So what do you think the lesson of human psychology that you learn from working with farmers and also taking young, brilliant scientists and trying mm -hmm. to, to, to make them also very much human? Well, I think it is. I, I think so often, you know, people go into wildlife work or animal work because maybe they don't necessarily like people as much. And, you know, people are a problem, but they're also a solution. And I'm very interested in people. I'm interested in where they come from, how they tick, what, you know, what, what makes them be who they are. And from that, um, I think you can start learning a lot more about working together with them. And so I've, you know, worked with some of the toughest farmers there are in this country. And, you know, you know, why are they tough and who are they? And, you know, they become friends. And, and I think that's the personal side of things. And my graduate students, I love all my students that I've worked with. And I think in the last 30 years we've worked with, I've had over a thousand students, which we've added up because we just celebrated our 30 year anniversary. And, and that's just amazing. And I'm in contact with still so many of them and watching them grow up and giving them advice. But I think what they've learned here is they've learned how to work with people um, and how to share our care about the animals with the people that we are dealing with. And I think that that then, as they go on into other, you know, uh, in their life, they've learned that people are a part of, of conservation. You know, you are often referred to as the Jane Goodall of cheetahs, which I would think would be a compliment. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a compliment. So that's a big step between somebody growing up in California 
and sort of ascending that, you know, what was that moment that got you on your trail to Namibia and cheetahs? Well, let me see. You know, well, I ran a wildlife park in Oregon and I was in charge of cheetahs. And I had a cheetah named Kayam who got me here to Namibia. So and my job was, and this was again in the middle 70s, and my job was to find out if a, um, a cheetah born in captivity could learn how to hunt and what steps were involved. And that's why I was here in Namibia to begin with. And, um, and so I learned a lot from her. I did teach her how to hunt. And that's what I learned that farmers were killing so many cheetahs and kept coming back and traveling throughout a lot of the cheetah range countries, trying to find out where the best place might be to try to help save the cheetah. And then at that time in the 70s, uh, I was writing to everybody in the world, you know, the WWFs and any conservation organization and governments. I was knocking on the U.S. government's door saying, who can try to help save cheetahs? And nobody, nobody came around to help. And everyone said, you know, there's nothing going on with cheetahs. And that's when I think I decided, Kayam had passed away. And, um, and after we'd been together for her entire life, uh, I thought that somebody needed to do something. And I call that the they factor, that they will take care of it, but there is no they. So you have to become a they. And that's when I set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund and decided that I was gonna come over to Namibia and figure out a way to help save the cheetah. So it's grown obviously over a 30 year period of time, but there was an aha moment. And that was really um, after realizing that there was no they. And I actually have one of the livestock guarding dogs right here with me. You know, for people who are listening to this, uh, I'm watching Lori tilt down her camera. And if you've never seen a Turkish Kangal, look it up. They have the most sympathetic, lovely face. And this dog is sort of underneath her arm with, I can see the tail wagging. And thank goodness, thank goodness this dog is not barking. Otherwise, this podcast would not continue. Lori, the, the accepted wisdom with large cats, for example, lions, is that once a lion is in captivity, it could never be released. What made you think that you could do that with cheetahs? Well, again, this goes back to, you know, in the early 70s when the zoos just started collaborating together and the stop of any animals coming from the wild with the, the CITES and the Endangered Species Act. And from that, we needed to find out um, if indeed you could breed animals in captivity and maintain genetic diversity. And then from that, what steps would be involved in putting an animal back out into the wild? Of course, with an animal that's big, like a lion or a tiger, or even a leopard, um, is they become habituated towards people, they lose their fear. And so one of the biggest things, primarily for these very large animals, and possibly more dangerous is that they could find people and they have no fear of people and it would be more dangerous for people. Um, cheetahs are similar. And so hand-raised cheetahs would not be a recommended animal to go back out into the wild. But cheetahs are the smallest of the big cats and they're not you know, dangerous to humans. And so we knew that if we, uh, you know, my study was to find out, well, what steps were involved. And we have continued with our um, rehabilitation and rewilding work here in Namibia for the last you know, 15 to 20 years, 
where we end up getting orphan cats in. And if you have to bottle raise them, they're not a good candidate. But if you get them in at about, you know, six months of age and raise them up, they don't, they hate you at that point in time. You can keep them, as you know, we have very uh, far away off, you know, away from people areas where we can raise these animals up. And they, um, we've been able to grow them up and actually put them back out into the wild and they stay away from people. So that's really the biggest thing is that you need enough area, you need to be kind of away from people. And then there is the danger of, of the human that we're, you know, we can't put animals out that could hurt people. Um, but oftentimes these animals really want to stay away from people. We've seen that a lot with leopards as well, um, that they, you know, they, they kind of hate people a lot. And, and that's the, the kind of animal that could be rewilded or go back out into the wild. Laura, I noticed that you were um, in the news recently that um, the whole notion of reintroducing cheetahs to India is something that you're very serious about. I know that you had tried conversations with the country of Iran, reintroducing cheetahs to there. Where are you on either of those projects? Well, Iran, we were never looking at reintroducing. What we were trying to do is to save the last of the 50 cheetahs that are there. Um, and we are still active in our communications with our Iranian colleagues as well. Uh, but in um, India, we've been working there for now about 25 years. But over the last decade, it's become clear that the government does want to move forward with it. And this past year, um, the Indian government did uh, put a ruling out where they are um, have a committee and they are looking at places to put um, cheetahs back out into the wild. I think it was about maybe maybe eight years ago, I actually did a recce into um, one of the areas that they're looking at. And it's come forward again that this reserve is the potential for rewilding of cheetahs. Um, I've done this in a few different countries. One was Zambia, and they've just released cats back into that area where I'd made the recommendation of how to. Um, I've looked at places like Uzbekistan, but now this project with, I think, India, I would say in the next couple of years may come forward. And um, we still need to find cats that could go. And some of the cheetahs that we've done our rewilding work with here are in a reserve called Rindi Ranch, which is about three hours from where we are. And we've now been able to actually grow a nice population there of animals that have been um, rehabilitated as well and are now breeding. And so again, we're trying to find the right animals that could go there and do the best for India. So we're just um, consulting and um, they've got a great team there that I've worked with, as I said, for about a decade. And they are serious about this. The cheetah has been extinct in India since the early 1950s. And um, here they've got lions and tigers. Of course, they've got bears. And the cheetah is one of the few animals that has gone extinct. And they really do want to bring it back. Of course, it had been revered for you know hundreds of years by the Maharajas there. Um, they are one of the most amazing animals in the world. And it would be just incredible to see the cheetah living back in India again. I mean, rehabilitation um, is very, very difficult. Um, it's much easier to try to take care of the animals where they are and bringing an animal back into its uh, past habitat is a huge job that does take the government, the best biologists and collaborators to ever make something like this work. 
Laurie, one of the things, again, maybe it's human psychology that I'm always so amazed about you is you live two lives. You live the life of a hardcore, in the dirt, farmer, rancher, a researcher. I mean, that's that's your DNA. Yet half the year, I see that you go from fundraiser to fundraiser to fundraiser. And some of these are very fancy. I know that you've um, been greeted by heads of state, by movie stars, all those things. How do do you reconcile those two words, you know, worlds from a psychological standpoint? Because let's face it, being at home in Namibia is a lot different than being in Hollywood talking to stars about saving Cheetah. What keeps you grounded and, and how do you do it? Well, fortunately, it's not a full half of the year, but it's about a quarter of the year that I have to travel. And um, I think that the people are interested in the stories I can tell and and yeah, the dirt is good. I love dirt. So, I mean, I love our dirt here and in every country that I visit, which is a cheetah range country, I, I feel it. And I, I can share that, I think, with the people who I meet and are interested in, in the story, I think, that I have to tell and the fact that we can actually make a difference to save this species. Um, and um, it is, you know, it's just interesting, I guess, to go back and forth. You know, these days I'm going back and forth up into Somaliland as well, which is a much harsher um, environment than that of Namibia here. Uh, also a desert, but that's where there's a lot of illegal wildlife trade going on with cheetahs. And we're working really hard right now to try to stop this illegal trade. And there we're dealing with, you know, lawmakers and, um, and going from nomads and pastoralists, which are just um, um, amazing on the ground with their camels, trying to explain to them that they need to stop catching cheetahs and leave them be. So um, I don't know, I'll, I just like talking to people and if they are interested in cheetahs, um, I think they're interesting. So. You're, you're an incredible optimist because if, if one were to <laughs> sit down and really think about it, you know, you look at the environment, how the numbers have declined with cheetah, there's reason not to get out of bed. And so what is it that keeps you going or keeps you this eternal optimist? Well, nature is resilient and we as people can make a difference. And if we don't keep trying, we're gonna lose the cheetah. The cheetah, there's only, there's less than 7,500 cheetahs left in the world today, which is not enough. Um, and we have to, have to, have to, I have to keep everybody going because I know that we can save the cheetah. We've got plans throughout the cheetah ranges. Um, I've trained people in all the cheetah, different cheetah range countries where there are 23 range countries. And I know that if I can keep them stimulated and going and they all know that I'm there for them at any point in time that we can save the species, but it's gonna still take a lot of work and a lot of time. And as you know, our motto is, you know, change the world to save the cheetah. So the world has to change for the cheetah to also be, sur to, to survive. Was there any role model you had growing up? There was, who was that person that you really looked up to and said, wow, I really admire that person? Oh my, well, I'm sure I had many, but um, of course I've always, you know, loved Jane Goodall. She's of course wonderful. Um, Back when I was growing up, you know, I grew up on the back of a horse. So um, I always remember though, my, my parents saying to me, if you don't take care of your animals, they're gonna go away. 
And if anyone, that means, you know, I was out cleaning my stalls and feeding my dogs and feeding my horse. It wasn't my parents. And I think that stuck with me more than anything. If you don't take care of it, it's going to go away. And I always said to my parents, you'll never take my horse away from me or my dog or cat. And now I feel the same way about our world's wildlife. If we don't take care of it, it's going and we're watching it go. We're losing species at such a rate that again, we can make a difference. So I, I think maybe that's, that's one of the big things that, that has kind of kept me going along this line. And, and thank God it has. Lori, you are referred to as the Jane Goodall of cheetah. And I can imagine a day in the not so far future when people say that they are the Lori marker of, and I, th- I think that, that I, I, I believe that <laughs> I, I've seen you in action and um, I have visited literally hundreds of non-for-profits. I often tell people that, you know, a lot of people are asking for donations, money, and you want to make sure that if you're giving a donation that it's well spent. How can people help the Cheetah Conservation Fund? How can they make a difference with cheetahs? Well, we'd love people to go to our website, which is cheetah.org. I think of you, I think of Cheetah Conservation Fund, and I think the world is a better place for having someone like Lori Marker in it. And I, you know, as, as a friend and also as someone in that profession, I'd like to thank you for that. Thank you so much, Richard. It's always wonderful to talk with you. And I hope people do go to our website, which is cheetah.org. So, you know, please join us and learn more about the cheetah and what we can do to not only save the cheetah, but an entire ecosystem and large landscapes and work with people. Dr. Lori Marker, thank you so much for being on Life's Tough, But Explorers Are Tougher. Every great expedition has to come to an end. But that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.